Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Matthew. So if you, grab, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Exodus. We, um, I love saying that. I love one of the annoying things, if you're new, one of the annoying things I do is I'm actually a fan of the Old Testament. It, it's almost like it's one story. It's almost like God wrote one story that spans the course of thousands of years. We're also big fans of sarcasm because that's exactly what we believe he did. What, uh, what we do is Matthew, there are four biographers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is Jewish, writing to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. Now, how many of you are Jewish? Right. How much background do you think we need to understand exactly what's going on? Lots. So what we usually do is we spend the first 15 or so minutes in the Old Testament because Matthew, more than any other biographer of Jesus, is concerned with showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel was, all that Israel was promised, that Jesus comes, in his words, as the son of David, the son of Abraham. The fulfillment of these epic promises given over hundreds of years. To, in the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Israelites. And so we have to start this morning, even before we get to Matthew, by rehearsing the story of Israel and their, their failures, because we just can't crash into Matthew and really get what he's doing unless you have that background, right? So we're going to look at three passages in Exodus. Now, those silly Israelites, God delivers them with such great power out of slavery, and they just keep screwing up. If you and I saw the Red Sea parted, we would never doubt again, would we? If you and I, right, if you and I saw these, these plagues delivered against the Egyptians while we were in slavery, we know that God's working on our behalf, we'd never doubt him again, would we? Right? We know that the people of God, this is the constant temptation. You see God do something great, you think, sweet, he's real, uh, he's, I'm his forever, and I'll never doubt him again, and then wouldn't you know it, things change, and we're back at that place of doubt and questioning. And this story is rehearsed in the nation of Israel, and there are three kind of big failings that the nation um, does right out of uh, their deliverance out of uh, slavery from Egypt. And so turn to Exodus chapter, uh, we'll start in 16, we're going to go three kind of failings they have. As God prepares to take them to this mountain called Sinai and to reveal the details of his agreement or covenant with them, Exodus chapter 16. So they've just seen God do all of this miraculous stuff. They now find themselves in the wilderness, chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim, I guess, and came to the desert of Sin, which was never a big tourist attraction back in the day which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now, the word grumbled in Hebrew is a bit stronger than than English translates. Grumble just sounds like, hey, we're just kind of bummed, we're having a bad day. Grumbled in Hebrew connotes the idea of, of antagonism and rebellion. Like, this is a simmering that's threatening to spill over, right? This is, they're highly unhappy, and notice why. They say to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by God's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Now, what they're choosing to forget here is that 
while they were in slavery, they were so numerous that the Egyptians commanded their firstborn be put to death. And they continually expected greater and greater production with less and less raw material. They were never given, they were never given a day off. They were never given the opportunity to celebrate the true God. They forget all of this stuff. And what they're remembering out in the wilderness is we just had, we could eat all that we wanted. If only we had died by God's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, Moses and Aaron, have brought us into the desert to starve us to death. God said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people that go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether or not they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And so this is the introduction of something called manna. Manna in Hebrew is what is it? So they, this, this bread stuff would show up on the ground like dew every morning. They're in the desert. They don't have refrigerators. They don't have coolers. They've got nothing. And literally the command was gather enough for that day and use it to make manna stew Manna pie, manna pudding, I mean, manna casserole. I mean, I get, you'd get sick of this after a while. But it was God's way of saying to his people every single day, I'm faithful. I'm faithful. You're dependent upon me. Because you had nothing else. I mean, there, you couldn't farm, you couldn't hunt. There was nothing except God's provision every day of this bread-like substance that would have show up on the ground. And on the sixth day, in preparation for the day of rest, they were to gather enough for two days. I mean, it was just this epic and beautiful picture of total dependence on God. Do you think the Israelites liked it so much? Not really, because it was dependent, right? It's just much easier to have control yourselves. And so the first failing of Israel was the failing to believe that God could provide food for them after they've seen him do all of these great things. Now, go to chapter 17. The second failing has to do with uh, water. Verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord God to the test? You just saw him provide food. Why do you worry about water? But the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die? Right? So the first accusation was, why did you deliver us if you're just going to kill us of hunger? And now it's, why did you deliver us if we're just going to die of thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to put me to death. The Lord answered, go in front of the people, take with you some elders, and take uh, in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, and I will stand before you by the rock at Oreb, strike the rock, and, you, uh, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he actually named the place Massa, which means quarreling, and Meribah, which means testing, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested God, saying, hey, is God with us or not? So first failure has to do with believing that God prov could provide food. Second failure with the belief that God actually could provide water. And so they tested God by demanding that 
that God give them water. And it was a test to demonstrate that God was still with them, even after all that they had done. Now go to uh, Exodus chapter 32. So God gets these people to a place called Mount Sinai. And there he reveals himself on top of this mountain. And it's a pretty intense picture we're given. It's smoke and lightning and fire and thunder and all of this. I mean, and you can't see it. There's no visible form that God takes. But it's all this kind of epic stuff. And the people are so terrified, they just say to Moses, Moses, we nominate you to go be uh, the ambassador to God on our behalf. Go ahead and take some notes and let us know kind of the upshot. For 40 days, Moses is gone. And so chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, who was the other leader. And they said, come, make us gods who will go out before us. As for this fellow Moses, we have no idea what happened to him. Aaron answered, take off the gold earrings your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. Right. So this is really a passage about why you shouldn't wear earrings. He took what was handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. They said then to everybody, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now think about what has happened. God delivers them. He parts the Red Sea. The Egyptian armies toast behind them. He's going to take them to the promised land. They're out in the wilderness. And immediately they say, but we don't have food. Why didn't you just put us to death back there? Why do we have to go hungry? He provides manna. But we don't have water. Why don't you just put us to death back there? How are we going to drink anything? He provides water from this rock. Then they, they actually go to the place where God intended them to be. Moses goes up, but he's gone for so long. And this freaky, smoke-filled, lightning, thunder, fire mountaintop thing just isn't quite understandable enough and so they look around and and the other nations of that region worshiped a fertility god in the shape of a calf and they said well let's do that that sounds a that's a bit easier to understand and manage so everyone contributes some earrings they make an uh, an idol in the shape of a calf and then say these are the gods that brought us out of egypt now god is quite upset by this development And what happens next, well, I'll summarize the story. God disciplines his people. He finally gets them out of Mount Sinai, and he takes them to this land he promised. They stand at the very edge of this promised land, ready to go in. And they send some spies to check it out. Some of the spies come back and say, dude, there's no way we can take these guys. There's no way. Even though God had said, hey, I'm with you. I'll do the heavy lifting. There's no way we can do it. And so God disciplines them by saying, well, if you guys won't go in trusting that I'm with you, then we'll spend the next 40 years back out in the wilderness wandering around until that generation dies off. They come back again to the promised land with a new generation of Israel. And now Moses stands before them, reminding them of all the screw-ups of their forefathers and all the lessons they should have learned. Go to the book of Deuteronomy. Flip over a couple to the right. Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon to the people. Deuteronomy 6. To the people of God. Are you guys out there? Are you tracking with this? I know we're out in the wilderness of the Bible right now. Maybe you think the wilderness is just a metaphor for how you're feeling right now. Relevance. It's 20 minutes from this point. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is Moses' sermon, a summary of the law to, the gods, to God's people, reminding them when they get into the promised land, don't forget the lessons you learned in the wilderness. Go to chapter 6, verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to give you, a land with large flourishing cities which you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful not to forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. That's in reference to the mistake with the golden calf, right? Why don't you try? How about this? Serve the one God who's rescued you. Fear the Lord God and serve him only. Do not follow other gods, the God of peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Evidently, he cares about this a lot. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Did we just read that? Exodus 17, right? They tested the Lord. So Moses says, first of all, remember the lesson of the golden calf. Fear God and serve him only. Secondly, remember the lesson of Exodus 17, right? Where they tested God. Do not put the Lord God to the test. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. Now flip over to chapter 8. One other part relevant for where we're headed. Chapter 8, verse 1. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, that's kind of an odd statement, because what was God providing for them? Bread. All right, you guys still out there? I had one person, this godly young lady in row two. Jesus smiles upon you. What did God provide? And so, so the, the, the thing that Moses is saying is that he provided them bread to teach them that they don't live by bread alone. Because the lesson wasn't just, hey, here's bread. It was, here's just enough for today. We ultimately live by God's mercy, his promise, his faithfulness, not just by what we can accomplish with our own hands. Make sense? Now, so we have three failures in Exodus, right? Bread, water, golden calf. We have Moses in Deuteronomy saying to a new generation of Israelites, hey, don't forget the Lord. Don't test him like we did with the, with the water. Don't worship other gods. Fear the Lord and serve him only. And don't forget the lesson of manna. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word, command, or promise that comes from the mouth of God. Now go to Matthew chapter 4. That was all background, brothers and sisters. You survived. Well done. Matthew chapter 4, per review, Matthew chapter 1, genealogy, which is highly significant. We looked at that before Christmas. The birth of Jesus, which is highly significant. We looked at that before Christmas. Je uh, Matthew chapter 2, 
is Jesus fleeing to Egypt and coming back, Matthew chapter 3, which is what we looked at last week, was John the baptizer showing up in fulfillment to these promises given in Malachi and Isaiah that there would be one who would come preparing the way for Messiah. And this one looks at the Jewish people and says to the Jewish people, your Jewishness is no longer sufficient to guarantee you a place in God's new work. You must be baptized and repent. Huge deal. Jesus of Nazareth shows up. And he's baptized by John to say, not only do I validate what your, what your role is in this whole calendar, this eschatological calendar, which is a big way of saying this ultimate movement that God has to bring all things together under his feet. That didn't clarify it, probably. <laughs> not only do I validate your ministry, but I complete it. I fulfill it. And as he's being baptized, right, the heavens open up. The Spirit comes down and, and descends upon him in fulfillment of Isaiah 42. God says, God the Father says, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, this may shock you to know, but the chapter, paragraph, and verse designations in your English Bibles weren't there originally. These were added way later. So you wouldn't read this and have a paragraph break, a new chapter heading, right, and a big number four. You would have just, it would jar you in Greek to read about the Spirit landing on God and then chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You kind of have this epic validation of Jesus by the Father. The Spirit, the Spirit is here. Sonship is declared. This is the promised one. And then bam, this, this spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. And whenever you hear wilderness, remember, to the Jewish consciousness, the wilderness is highly symbolic. There are all sorts of parallels Matthew is going to make between Israel and Jesus. Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is going to be fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. Those aren't just random numbers. Matthew's got an agenda. So, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry, as an understatement. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, the if in English makes it sound like the tempter didn't know. Hey, I'm not sure if you're the Son of God, so if you are, could you dazzle me? That's not the flavor of, of how it's originally written. It's written as, since you are the Son of God. There's no question on the tempter's part about who this is. The temptation isn't to prove that he's the Messiah. The temptation is to demonstrate what kind of Messiah he'll be. And this becomes highly important. So, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, does that seem like a big temptation to you? It doesn't to me. You're all wrong. <laughs> to me, I mean, a big temptation is go rob a bank. You know, go steal a Lexus. All right, maybe those aren't huge temptations, but you get what I'm saying. It doesn't, these aren't obviously, these aren't like obviously evil things that the tempter sitting in front of Jesus so it's interesting, these stones evidently look a bit like bread. You've been, you've been hungry, right? You've been fasting 40 days and 40 nights, so just turn these stones into bread. You could certainly do it, since you're the Son of God. Jesus replies, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Did we just read that somewhere? 
Did we just read that? We did. Exodus, right? Chapter 16. Bread. God, we don't believe you'll come through. Why why don't you just kill us now? Where's food going to come from? I will give you bread, God says. Manna. Moses in Deuteronomy is reflecting on that incident and says, listen, he humbled you by making you dependent on him for literal bread to teach you that you do not live on literal bread alone. But according to God's sovereign mercy, by every word that comes out of his mouth. So now Jesus, in the wilderness, after 40 days, in a temptation involving bread, quotes from the place where Moses says, Israel, you were tempted to not believe God, and he provided bread so that you would learn you do not live by bread alone. And so what does Jesus quote? That same verse. Fascinating. (laughs) Second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Since you are the son of God, throw yourself off. And then the devil quotes the Bible at him. Now, if you're going to get into a kung fu Bible match with anybody, the last person you want to do that is with is Jesus of Nazareth. Would you agree? Now, anytime you read about devil, the, usually the people of God have one of two reactions. Either we obsess on this whole devil thing, And we see spiritual attack behind every lost parking space and every bad day. And I mean, seriously, right? Some of us, we just go a little too obsessive on this. Sometimes we just have a bad day. It's not spiritual attack, right? Sometimes. Now, because of the obsessive people, the rest of us go to an even worse extreme, which is just to pretend like none of it's real. I mean, we're scientific after all, right? This is so pre-modern. <laughs> but putting faith in Jesus means, one of the things it means is beginning to see the world the way Jesus did. And it, for Jesus, very clearly part of the world was an antagonistic and personal embodiment of evil that opposes the work of God. And what's so interesting here is this personal embodiment of evil is quoting the Bible at Jesus, And the part he quotes is from from Psalm 91, which is a promise that God will protect godly people. So here's the flavor of the temptation. Satan says, hey, dude, you're starving. I know you're hungry. Stones to bread. What do you think? Nope. I learned the lesson from Moses. We do not live by bread alone. Oh, really? So you're going to play the I trust God card. Fine. How about stand on top of the temple in Jerusalem, and jump off. And then he quotes a passage that says, God will protect you. Now what does Jesus say? It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the what? Test. Does that sound familiar? It's almost like this is one big story. I can't believe it. So Israel disobeyed by not trusting in the wilderness And here is Jesus trusting God in the wilderness. Israel was called the Son of God in the Old Testament. Jesus is called the Son of God in the New Testament. Unbelievable. Jesus is succeeding where Israel Israel failed. All of the ways Israel didn't trust, Jesus is trusting. This is so incredibly important. 
So go ahead and jump off the temple because God will protect you. And, and, and the undercurrent of this is, hey, he'll protect you in front of everybody so that everybody will see God is with you. Remember, the test was, back in Exodus 17, is God with us or not? If he is, then give us some water. The temptation here is, prove that God's with you by jumping off the temple and demonstrating he'll protect you. Jesus responds, same passages in Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. Interesting, this is the same phrase he will use to rebuke Peter later when Peter suggests he shouldn't go to the cross. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Did we just read about that? Right, you, should, you should see this coming now. Israel had three failings in the wilderness. Right, They didn't believe that God was trustworthy. And so how will we eat? God provides manna. Second, we don't trust that you'll provide water. God provided water. They tested him and quarreled with God. Thirdly, we don't like the thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, like powerful God that we don't get per se, we like the little tiny bitty gold God that makes sense because all the nations have a God like that and we'd like one too. Moses says, from those three failings come three lessons. You do not live by bread alone. Do not put the Lord God to the test and worship the Lord and serve him only. Here comes the Messiah, the Son of God in the New Testament. In the wilderness, after 40 days of testing, the same three tests, and he responds, quoting Moses's, reminding of Israel about their failures in the wilderness. Are you with me on this so far? The most important thing you can see from this is that the temptations for Jesus were tempting him not to show that he was the Messiah, but they were tempting him to be the Messiah in a way that was contrary to what the Father would have his Messiahship be like. You have to understand that these temptations were tempting Jesus to take shortcuts. So for instance, you're hungry. You're fully God, you're fully man. So you're fully hungry. <laughs> right? And you have the power to feed yourself. Why don't you use your divine superpowers why don't you use them to circumvent the regular laws of nature to take care of your own needs? Now, how many of us, if we had superpowers, would be able to resist a temptation like that? Zero would be the answer. If you had the power, I mean, and you can see our hearts betray this all over the place, right? Our great, the great American virtue in life is comfort, convenience, safety, security. And if I had it in my power to arrange that for myself, I'd do it. So the temptation for Jesus is to abandon trust in God. And you have to understand that the gospel writers make a huge deal out of saying, Jesus saying, I only do what the Father says. I only go where the Father tells me. I only say what the Father tells me to say. That Jesus sets aside, he doesn't cease being God, but he sets aside all the prerogatives that were his as God to model full dependence on the Father. And this was the temptation for him to take matters into his own hands. 
Why trust that God will provide bread when I can provide it myself? That's the temptation. Or secondly, hey Jesus, demonstrate God's presence with you by jumping off the temple. Now you have to understand, when you read through the book of Matthew, constantly Jesus is being tested with this same test. Hey, Give us a sign, the Pharisees were saying. If you're the son of God, prove yourself. Even when he's on the cross, people will be saying to him, if you're really the son of God, come on down from the cross. Jesus was constantly tempted to dazzle people into his kingdom. I mean, jumping off the temple, being rescued by angels, would that constitute dazzling people? Absolutely. To the Jewish mind, there, there, there aren't many greater validators any greater validators. Sometimes sentences come out that I just have to reflect on their brilliance. <laughs> there weren't many better ways to validate messiahship than this. And so the temptation was for Jesus to jump off and it would be, have been a test of the Father because the Father would have rescued him and the issue wasn't would he because of course he would, and of course he could. The issue was Jesus forcing the Father's hand. That was the issue. And then the third temptation is the most insidious of all. Because the promise is, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. Now, at the end of Matthew, the very last thing Jesus says is, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I have the kingdoms of the world. There were two ways to get there. One, bend the knee and worship somebody other than God. What did number two consist of? The cross, humiliation, suffering, mockery, desertion. And whatever deep sense, some sort of separation from the Father as the weight of all sin was put upon him. I mean, which would you pick? The kingdom without the cross, or the kingdom through the cross. And this temptation doesn't leave Jesus, right? At the very last, he's crying out to God, God, if there's any other way, take this cup of suffering from me. But you know what? Whatever you will, I will do. These temptations concerned how Jesus would accomplish his messiahship. Would he use the ways of power, manipulation? Would he dazzle people? Would, would he control people? Would he give people no option but to believe? The temptations had to do with how Jesus would inaugurate the kingdom on earth. And what's fascinating is how often the church yields to the very temptations that Jesus resisted. Would you agree? How many of us are proud of the Crusades or the Inquisition? See, what Jesus shows us is the kind of Messiah he'll be is a Messiah who forms a kingdom based on obscurity, humility, downward mobility, suffering. Who wants that? I mean, in the Middle Ages, you would justify putting to death a heretic by saying, well, if we kill the heretic, that will save hundreds or thousands of people from hearing the heretic's message and they'll all be damned to hell, so let's just kill the heretic. I know. I didn't understand that either. Good job keeping your mommy awake. By saying no to all of that, Jesus demands that the methods we use 
match the message we preach. If the message is love, and love doesn't compel, love doesn't manipulate, love doesn't control, then Jesus let people walk away from him. Jesus was tempted to dazzle people. Jesus, give us a sign. And he would say no. Why is it that Jesus of Nazareth would actually tell people, after doing a pretty sweet miracle, don't tell anybody? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why Jesus doesn't make it more obvious that he's real? And so what the church has done through church history has said the ends justify the means. So abortion is a great evil. Let's bomb abortion clinics. Anytime we set some big cultural deal, let's pick it, let's shout, let's insult. Doesn't matter. We're right. I mean, if you're new to church, you have to understand how abhorrent Jesus would find much of church history. But it's not just the church that yields to the temptations that Jesus resisted, is it? How many times do I wish he would do something spectacular? How many times do I test him by saying, God, if you would do this, then? How many times do I want to take shortcuts? How many times, how many of us have loved ones that if there were a way to badger them or compel them or control them or to manipulate them into the kingdom, we would? Right? There's more than a few, I would bet. See, Jesus demonstrates a messiahship that forms a messianic community that isn't based around the values of the American dream. The American dream is upward mobility, what you can do yourself, all that you can accomplish for your namesake. The gospel is surrender, it's humility. It's downward mobility. Its greatness is defined by servanthood. It's the first will be last, and you must die to live, and you must lose to gain. And we all give lip service to that until we're required to do it ourselves. And then, I'd much rather have glory. I'd much rather have pride and exaltation of myself. See, this is good and bad news for us, brothers and sisters. Jesus refused. There was, there's this great, phenomenal section of the brothers Karamazov called the Grand Inquisitor. And I'll try to summarize very briefly because there's this point that's brilliant. Uh, the story is that Jesus shows up in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition. And there's an inquisitor, somebody who led the Inquisition, who's old and recognizes that Jesus has made an appearance and throws him into prison. And there's this, this interview of the Inquisitor who interviews Jesus and it kind of accuses Jesus. And here's what he says. Jesus, you betrayed humanity by saying no to the temptations of Satan because you made yourself far too easy to reject. If you would have said yes, you could have dazzled people and compelled people. But as it is, you made yourself too easy to reject. You betrayed humanity. And so the church has had to say yes to the methods that Satan suggested. Have you ever wondered why God isn't more obvious? Have you ever wondered why Jesus came 2,000 years ago in some obscure part of the world and not today when we could YouTube him? <laughs> Have you ever wondered why we don't know what it, he looks like? Have you ever wondered why 
The shape of the kingdom of Jesus is the shape of his messiahship. Suffering, obscurity, humiliation. I mean, who among us would realize that a crucified messiah turns out to be the glorification of God's real son? Who among us would have ever figured out that a peasant carpenter who never wrote a book, he never wrote a thesis, he didn't attract the best and the brightest of his day, he never traveled more than 30 miles from his home. I mean, who among us would have ever guessed that was God in human flesh and thousands of years later, here we are with his name on our lips. And so these temptations tell us so much about what God is like, right? I mean, first of all, You can be tempted and not sin. Isn't that good news? Temptation itself isn't sin. Now, I need to hear that. Because I think if I'm even tempted to do something, I've already fallen. And the scriptures say that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So you can be tempted and not sin. That's awesome. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of God who succeeds where Israel had failed. And the reason that matters is because in, in deep New Testament teaching, you and I get credit for his righteousness. He took upon himself all of the sin and shame I received from him, all of the righteousness that he displayed on earth. It's crazy. But then thirdly, and most importantly, the temptations demonstrate once and for all what kind of Messiah Jesus would be like. And what kind of Messiah you and I say yes to? How often in America do we want the dazzling and the spectacular? How often do we say, we put God to the test by saying, if you follow God, he'll make you wealthy and he'll make you healthy. How often do we want our own exaltation? I want God, I want you to bless my agenda. I want you to add to my life. I want you to be my life coach like he's some big motivational speaker. And how often does Jesus instead say, if you're going to follow me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and then come. This is what we've said yes to. And this, as it turns out, is where, where freedom is and where joy is and where he is. So here's what I want you to do. Would you take everything off your laps? We're going to play a little game of participation. I know it's shocking. It's church. And we're going to ask you to do something. I want you to take one hand and have a closed fist and one hand with an open hand. All right, like this. Let me see this right now. Okay? Thank you for being so enthusiastically participating. All right, everyone else is going, yeah, okay, I don't want to do this. This feels so new agey or something. I just want to sit passively and watch the paid professionals do this. Now, the reason we use our bodies to respond, right, is God is a God of props. He always uses physical things to embody spiritual reality. So an exercise like this is just a way to capture that. This is going to stand for something in your life that you hold on to that causes you to say yes to the temptations that Jesus resisted. I I'm sick of waiting for God to do this. And so I'm going to take it in my own hands. I don't have a job yet. And God keeps telling me to wait. And I don't want to wait. 
There's a diagnosis hanging over. I mean, whatever it is, it can be huge, it can be tiny, but this thing causes me to take shortcuts, to want to take control, and to rely on myself. This is the thing I want to grab a hold of as I let go of this that I can grab onto the opposite. So, for me, personally, I'm a big fan of self-reliance. God helps those who help themselves, right? That's not in the Bible. <laughs> Just so we're clear. <laughs> and so... So I want to grab a hold and I want to work and strive and I keep beating my head against God who just keeps saying, no, 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 nope, got something better, nope, nope, nope. I mean, you can just, I mean, I'm an idiot. I'm stubborn and I'm dumb and I keep going after it. So what's the invitation for me? To abandon self-reliance and to grab hold of surrender that he is faithful and his timing is good timing. I have a tough time believing that. He always seems like he's late. (laughs) I want to take a shortcut. I know God wants that for me, and I want to take a shortcut. I let go, and I grab hold of surrender, of trust, of dependence, that just daily bread is enough for me. Just today is enough. I grab hold of control and manipulation, God, I mean, how many of us do deals with God? I will pray for my kids every day and you will make my kids turn out okay. (laughs) I will be pure before marriage, God, because then after it's going to be awesome, right? (laughs) I'll give money because then you'll bless me, right? All of that's putting God to the test. How many ways do we put God to the test? And instead of that, we say, God, I'll obey without thought of what I get. So, shut your eyes, please. I will be tracking who does the fist thing, okay? (laughs) But for a moment, and I want to give you time on this, because whether or not you do the physical part, the spiritual and mental and emotional part is the most important part. What is the thing that we're clutching? The thing that causes us to rely on ourselves? The thing that tempts us to short-circuit or to circumvent what God would have us do in waiting? What's the thing? And then what's the thing God would grab, have us grab a hold of that is the surrender thing, that is the dependent thing? So what we're going to do is we're just going to sing over you for a few moments. And whenever you're able, let go of the one and grab hold of the other just as a way of saying, God, I recognize As the author and perfecter of my faith, I stand with no condemnation. This isn't about condemnation. This is about freedom. This is about grabbing hold of the life that is really life. And this is about learning that God is good and trustworthy. So as you do this, take your time. We'll just sing over you. And whenever whenever you want to, open one hand and close the other. And then join us as we sing. Lord, I pray by the authority of your name that your spirit would come and reveal our hearts to us and that you would breathe grace and faith and courage in us. God, that you would bring conviction, but also light and truth and joy. 
And Lord, that you would help us to see Jesus in such powerful ways. To recognize we have a sympathetic high priest, but beyond that, we have an advocate. And so Lord, come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.